The following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers, and if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a kind of whenever we want kind of book review and discussion podcast specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Ruiz Tremello, and I raise artisanal pet cabbages for sale on the black market. And my name is Marguerite, and I am a sunbeam navigation expert. Together we travel the world administering Turing tests and murdering robots gone rogue. And this week we are on India's French coast, in a town called Nouveau-Orleans. One little-known fact about Nouveau-Orleans is that it used to have a factory that built robots, but now it just has a fire that crews have been struggling to put out for five hours and counting. But the important thing is, we definitely have alibis. And the other important thing is that this week we are discussing Lonely Road by Richard Wilson from the year 1956. Today's short story is brought to us from a book of Richard Wilson's short stories titled those idiots from Earth. Marguerite, would you be so kind as to describe the cover for our listeners? Oh, why do you do this to me? Okay, so uh, the background color is sort of an orangey-yellow and then with uh, like a muted orange. And let's start from the bottom to the top. So the very bottom are these black and red geometric figures. And then... The bottom is like a sandy area, like maybe a desert, maybe a sort of hint of a road. Then there's some clouds. Oh, and then there is, I think it's some kind of robot, but it's got a whole lot of different geometric shapes with these long spindly arms that are scratching its head. Noggin? The top of its body. Yeah, that cover is bizarre and inexplicable. I don't know what it is. But it'll be on our Instagram. Yes, it will. And in the notes for the show notes. So today's story, The Lonely Road, takes place in the year, roughly 1956, somewhere in the eastern United States of America. First sentence is, The hum of the tires and the throb of the heater had made him sleepy. He realized that when the hum became a squeal, he had taken a sharp curve unconsciously at full speed. I think we've all been there. Time for a coffee stop, he decided. Mm-hmm. Always. The he in the previous sentences refers to Clarence R. Spruance. An ordinary man on an ordinary 18-hour-long drive. <laughs> there is no ordinary 18-hour drive. Heading from some place and going home to some other unspecified place. <laughs> wow. The details in the story are already overwhelming. Quote, he had been driving half the night. Another 12 hours to go. That's half the night? Their nights are 24 hours? He could do it without sleep, if he didn't doze himself into a ditch. Coffee every three hours would help. Oh my god. And it's the middle of the night, so Clarence, like any good driver who's falling asleep behind the wheel, he doesn't go to sleep. He stops for coffee. Yep. The sign says EAT in all capital letters. And below that, Dan's Diner. Truckers welcome. No cars or trucks are parked there making Clarence think that maybe the coffee is not so great. <laughs> but he needs coffee, so he parks and heads inside. He sits down at the counter and picks up a menu, musing over the items before deciding 
to have some coffee. Oh my god, this story is so boring so far. <laughs> also, he decides he wants a hamburger and a piece of pineapple cheese pie if they had it. Oh no, that's gross. What, pineapple cheese? Yeah. Uh, which part of that is gross to you? Ugh, the pineapple cheese. <laughs> and if not, he would settle for apple. I would have, that would be my first choice. Only after consulting the menu and deciding on all of his choices, does Clarence realize that the entire diner is empty, of both customers and staff. <laughs> so he gets in there. Oh, I guess because he was tired. He hadn't had coffee. Yeah. He sounds like a safe driver. <laughs> yeah, he should definitely be on the road. So he explores the whole restaurant, but doesn't find anyone at all, including in all of the back rooms. Time to loot. So he brews himself a pot of coffee, which is actually quite terrible. Yeah, it's an empty diner. And then he makes a sandwich himself and helps himself to apple pie because they're apparently all out of the ever-popular pineapple cheese. Oh, that's disgusting. Clarence feels bad for stealing, so he does the math for his coffee, sandwich, and pie and leaves 65 cents in the cash register. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I know when this was written. Before heading back to his car and heading back on the road. Good for him. 65 cents for coffee, sandwich, and pie. Why is this place unlocked? And all lit up? Yeah, I think it feels mm. like a trap to me. After driving for a little while, Clarence notices that he's almost out of gas. He'd actually passed a few lit-up gas stations earlier, but they weren't his brand, so he didn't stop. Hmm. But the needle is pointing too close to empty now, and any brand will do. <laughs> so he pulls into the next well-lit gas station he finds, parking next to the pump and honking his horn for service, because it's the middle of the night and... Everything must always be full service in the 50s. <laughs> Was it? I don't even know. But no one comes. Climbing from his nondescript automobile, Clarence heads inside and it's the same story as the diner. Not a single person is in sight. Hmm. Ominous. And come to think of it, Clarence realizes he hasn't seen another single car on the road in roughly 10 hours. We just noticed this now. He is not an observant man. Well, I guess driving for 18 or 24 hours, depending on whose math you do. And it's flashback time. Boot. Quote, He then remembered the sudden rain in the late afternoon that had darkened the sky and blurred his windshield. Once upon a time, that afternoon, you see, Clarence remembered other cars turning on their headlights because the rain was so dark and so heavy. But his windshield wipers weren't working, so he pulled over under a bridge. Is it Time Bridge? Or, uh, Time Space Bridge? This is my favorite quote of the whole story right here. Yep. He'd been standing for a moment, stretching, when he noticed two pools of water near a catch basin. It reminded him of his son, dead these seven years. What? <laughs> because his son was liquefied into pools of water? Among the last things he and Joan had bought for the boy were two fish bowls Bobby wanted for his experiment. Ooh, that's ominous. He stared at the two pools in the underpass, thinking of the boy and of Joan waiting at home at the end of his drive. He got back in the car. He couldn't remember seeing another car after that. Mm -mm -mm. Teleportation bridge. Meanwhile in the present, now that our flashback about his dead son is over, Clarence fills his gas tank heads into the station, and leaves a fair amount for a full tank of gas. Four dollars. Oh, man. I wish. So expensive. Leaving the station, he hits the empty road and finally, after ten hours of driving, turns on the radio. Oh, really? He's not very good at keeping himself awake. That radio should have been on, the windows should have been open, he should just, like, mainlining coffee. And he discovers that every single radio station 
doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Yeah, it's just static the entire dial. Which he considers surprising because usually WWVA can be heard along the entire eastern U.S. Wow. Playing its hillbilly records and Ugh. hawking its patent medicines and illustrated Bibles. Oh, yay. It's 3 a.m. And Clarence switches off the radio. Because he's so observant and full of all kinds <laughs> of unique personality traits, he decides to hum quietly to himself while he drives. I'm so glad he's not alarmed by any of this. <laughs> Finally, he comes to a town where ordinary cars are parked ordinarily along the ordinary sides of the road. Uh-huh. At a red light, Clarence stops and notices an all-night drugstore up ahead. When the light turns green, he heads through the intersection and parks, going in to buy some cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Not because he needs them, because he does have plenty, but mostly to see if there's anyone around. Yeah, finally, after what, 12 hours he's finally getting curious, or 18 hours? <laughs> He plans to tell the night clerk all about the empty diner and the empty gas station, but predictably, the drugstore is also empty. Yep. Going to a phone booth, Clarence dials the operator, but after ten rings, hangs up. He tries again, then calls 411, but there's no answer. He also tries 211 for long distance, as well as 611 for repair service, but there's no answer at either number. Strangely, he doesn't call 911. <laughs> But Clarence does dial seven totally random numbers, none of which answer, probably because it's 4.30 in the morning and everyone's asleep. Yeah. Leaving the drugstore, Clarence drives until dawn before finding a roadside hotel. Which is going to be empty. As usual, it's empty. Why is everything unlocked, though? That's really weird. With power and everything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he heads inside, writes his name on the hotel register, grabs a room key, and goes to bed. Doesn't even bother looking for people now. He's just like, I'm just going to do my thing. He wakes up to find the world still empty. After shaving, he hits the empty road again. And for the first time in this entire ordeal, he breaks the speed limit. Yeah, I would have done that, oh, what, about ten hours ago? <laughs> he pulls his car across the yellow line and drives on the left and takes every turn at full speed. Whee! But after a little while, the sense of danger and adventure passes. So Clarence slows down to the speed limit. And moves Why? back to the right side of the road. That seems like an odd choice. Yeah, this man is extremely... Um, boring? Boring, yeah. He stops at another gas station in a small town to fill up his tank. Then realizes he needs more cash. So he goes to the bank. Which is also empty. That's correct. So he writes out a check for $200 and leaves it at a bank teller's desk. Then heads around the counter to grab some money. I'm uh, so glad it's just like lying around in the bank. Unfortunately, when he pulls open a cash drawer, it sets off an alarm. But Clarence counts out $200 and leaves, being very honest, and leaves with the alarm still ringing behind him. I'd almost at that point want to stay, because you'd think, like, oh, if somebody comes to this alarm, then at least I know there's people. Mm-hmm. I would take more than 200 <laughs> Well, you're not boring old boring face. Clarence drives for hours and hours the afternoon sun making him sleepy, till finally he's 48 miles from home, and he's approaching a toll booth, <laughs> where Clarence is shocked to see a toll road toll booth operator attendant person. <gasps> finally a person! Waiting to take his cash, a hefty 25 cents to use the toll road. Oh, that's outrageous. You're back, Clarence says, and when the toll boother asks what, Clarence declares, I mean, everything's the same, it's not... 
But the toll bootherist tells him to move along because other cars are waiting. None of your nonsense. And that's a fact because there's suddenly several cars behind him waiting to pay the toll. Huh. Clarence drives ahead into a town. An ordinary town full of ordinary people driving ordinary cars. Mm -hmm. He stops at a newsstand and checks today's paper to find ordinary headlines. Maybe he was just asleep the whole time and it was just a dream. Heading into a diner, he orders a meal and eats while reading the newspaper end to end. But everything is completely ordinary and normal, except... Except for that disgusting cheese pineapple pie. <laughs> except the cream he tries to add to his coffee isn't fresh. No! It's curdled. And when Clarence... He's in some kind of hellscape. <laughs> when Clarence tells the waiter, he's told, quote, I only work here. If you want to complain, I'll get the manager. <laughs> or you just get him more cream. Clarence says no, he doesn't care that much, apparently, about curdled milk in his coffee, and then asks if anyone has a copy of yesterday's newspaper. The waiter says no, so Clarence asks where the newspaper office is. After getting directions, he heads to the newspaper. So he's super close to home after being away for X number of days, days I yeah. assume. And the first thing he wants to do is not go see if his wife's still alive and okay. He's just like, oh, I'm going to go to the newspaper office. Time to solve a mystery. <laughs> so he heads to the newspaper office and asks for yesterday's paper as well as the day before. The girl at the counter looks troubled and tells him, quote, I'll have to call the morgue. Uh, the library, I mean. What? <laughs> when she calls, she talks to someone for a bit before reporting to Clarence that the papers from yesterday and the day before haven't been filed yet. He asks if there's any loose copies, but she looks frightened and says no. So Clarence leaves. Oh, Clarence died, didn't he? It's evening. The sun's dipping down towards the horizon. Probably died while he fell asleep in his car. <laughs> Clarence is an hour away from home, so he stops and calls his wife. Jesus, it took him this long to decide to call his wife? <laughs> it did take him that long. <laughs> she picks up on the ninth ring. Where were you, he asks. I was in the attic, Joan replies. How are you, Claire? Will you be home soon? He says he's in Hayesville, and he's doing all right, but then asks what Joan was doing in the attic. Dude. She says she'll tell him later, and literally the exact very next line, he's home. Oh, wow. Joan makes coffee and a tray of sandwiches, saying it'll be a nice snack before dinner. A tray of sandwiches? <laughs> How much does this guy eat? It's the 50s. Yeah, that's true. And Clarence says it's good to be back. In more ways than one. In more ways than one? <laughs> what other ways is it good to be well, back? Well, he's good to be back home. And he's also good to be back in the world populated Ooh, with people. and reality and humanity. He tells Joan all about his experience and asks if she has any recollection whatsoever of the last two days. Saying that everyone he's spoken to seems to feel as though something's wrong, but nobody wants to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Which doesn't really map to reality. Maybe they were referring to him. Like... He was the creepy one. Yeah. Like, oh, I feel like something's wrong with you. Joan says, quote, I was in the attic when it happened. I'd gone up to look at Bobby's aquariums. His experiments? Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. Their son Bobby, you see, had died at the age of nine of an unspecified illness, probably bubonic plague. Or dysentery. About seven years ago. Of course, Clarence replies, Bobby's aquariums. There were two of them, identical, for an experiment. Ugh. <sighs> There were two, Joan reports, but there's only one now. Uh-oh. And the yarn that she spins says that basically she went up to, into the attic in the late afternoon. Bobby's stuff was all piled up there, like his tricycle and a stack of books and 
Of course, his aquariums. Sure, that seems healthy. You see, back when Bobby got sick, he became a tropical fish enthusiast. Spending hours watching fish darting mindlessly around their watery cages. Boring. Then one day, Bobby asked for a second aquarium, exactly like the first in every way. Bobby swapped all the fish from one aquarium to the other, then died sometime later, and, bo <laughs> and both aquariums were emptied and stayed wow. in the attic. Wow. What a great experiment, right? <laughs> Do you think that's what caused his death? <laughs> it's maybe what caused his dysentery. <laughs> Absolutely. Quote, that afternoon, Joan said, I'd picked up one of the aquariums and was holding it in both hands. I'd forgotten how heavy it was. Cradling it like a baby. Then I felt as if I was being moved. Not lifted or pushed, but moved in some positive way. Like emotionally? The light flickered for an instant, then the feeling stopped. I was still holding the aquarium. I put it down. Everything seemed the same, only it wasn't. There were three aquariums now. Oh, not three. That's terrifying. Three, her husband asked softly. Yes, it was as if I'd been taken out of my own house, my world, and transferred to one that duplicated the old one down to the last smudge on the wallpaper. Oh, yeah, because she was holding one of them. You know, the way Bobby transferred the fish for his experiment. But they didn't <sighs> fool me completely, just as the fish must have known their new aquarium was different. Ah. Oh. Clarence asks who they are who must have moved everyone. And Joan says she doesn't know. Aliens. <laughs> but felt like the movement was done in order to study everyone for a while. Alien children. Oh, no. Then, this very afternoon, Joan had the very same feeling of being moved. And when the feeling passed, everything around her felt more familiar and ordinary again. Hmm. She was dusting at the time and went to put away the dust mitt, only to find there was one already in the closet. Can we get a dust mitt? Ooh, I'm surprised we don't have one. Dust socks. She heads up to the attic and finds there's only one aquarium. Yeah, because she transferred the other one into the other dimension. Clarence says, quote, So they put you all in a new tank and studied you for a while and then brought you back. But why not me? And that's when Clarence remembers the snail. This, what? This, we've never heard of the snail. You see, back when Bobby did his two aquarium experiment, the kid forgot to move a snail that was hiding inside of the castle. In the fish aquarium. So he's the snail. And maybe that was just like Clarence, hiding below the overpass, fixing his windshield wiper in the rain. Why would an overpass be the only thing that blocks alien <laughs> transfer? And that's when we come to the final words of the story. Perhaps, his wife said. That's it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No. I remember Bobby was annoyed because he'd missed the snail. But then he said it was only an experiment and not a very important one. And instead of putting the snail in the new tank too, he put all the fish back in the old tank. He said he thought they liked it better there. <laughs> the end. Hmm. Interesting. So, we had a magical romping adventure. I feel like I learned nothing. Through the empty Midwest with the most boring protagonist of all time. Agreed. Who sees two the pools snail. of water. The snail of protagonists. Oh, wow. Does that mean he reproduces asexually? Obviously. Clearly. <laughs> oh, maybe that's what he was doing in that hotel. Yeah. He's like, no, everything's empty. I'd better re repopulate this planet. Maybe that's why everyone was looking at him weird. Oh, well, yeah. He was a snail the whole time. <laughs> why does that snail want a copy of yesterday's newspaper? <laughs> that's so odd. That's uncommon snail behavior. Tell him to go to the morgue. It's in the morgue. 
I mean library. So why didn't people want to do the paper? Were they just freaked out? Uh, yeah, apparently everyone's freaked out and they noticed something's off, but nobody's talking about it, even though it's literally They'd everyone. They'd rather ignore it. It's fucking everyone in the entire world is going to not talk about it, really. So for anyone under uh, overpasses. Or anyone holding any object at any point. No, they went. Well, I mean, yeah, the objects went and then suddenly duplicated. Like, this was a really bad execution of stealing everyone. Because if Joan went away with an aquarium and came back with an extra dust mitt, you know that, that around the world, everyone's going to have experiences like that. Yeah, a lot of people would be holding things like coffees or children. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel like whoever our malevolent alien forces in this, assuming aliens, they mm. didn't do a very good job. Mm-mm. Plus, what's the point? What was really the experiment? That's the other part they didn't do a good job on. Because this whole uh, Bobby's fish experiment is a very convenient plot device to give us a, a I feel like an explanation. They picked the wrong point of view. They picked the the most boring possible point of view. The snail. No, the guy who stayed. Yeah, the snail. Or so yes, yeah, sorry, the snail. It would be way more interesting to see the point of view from the people who got transferred over, and everything was like slightly different. Oh, yeah, and actually cataloging the differences, and is there going to be, getting, like, mass hysteria, and yeah. everyone's... getting, like, progressively freaked out. Bumping into each other in, like, the grocery stores and stuff, and looking at each other, being like, something's wrong with the world. Yeah, and then making a mass, like, compact to, to never discuss it again. <laughs> something's wrong with the world, let's never talk about it ever. No, don't talk about it. Well, that was Lonely Road by Richard Wilson from 1956. That was very boring. Richard Wilson was born in 1920 in Huntington Station, New York, and wrote three full books, including The Girls from Planet Five, hmm. and a whole bunch of short story collections. Richard Wilson mostly worked for the newspapers, and reportedly made it clear to his colleagues in the papers that he remained too content in his professional life to continue seriously writing. Oh, even as a his life was boring. He preferred working in newspapers. I wonder, what do you think he did? Do you think he was just, uh, does it say? Like, was he an editor? Was he a writer? Was he just the guy who literally folded the newspapers and <laughs> put them out? He was the director of the News Bureau of Syracuse University. That sounds fake. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Everett Book Club. Visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com. Or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. Also, go to our Instagram at everettbookclub. That's where things happen. All the things. Also, feel free to review us on whatever podcasting soft catching podcatching software. Oh, it should be called podcatching. Podcatching. What the hell? Why isn't it called that more commonly? I don't know. You just coined a phrase. We're gonna make sure that it's Yeah, phrased. you like catch the fishy the fishy podcasts. Yeah, well you catch things after casting. Yeah. We're the ones doing the casting. Listeners are doing the catching. Mm, they are being caught. We are catching them in our net. In our net of pod. Our pod, our pod net, net has captured you <laughs> until you are not captured. Until you escape. Or maybe, well, we're doing the catch and release. Oh, that's very humane of us. <laughs> yes, it is. If you or your organization are building an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests. Please note, there is no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism ever. So, Marguerite, Nouveau Orleans is a lovely little French town here on India's French coast. 
I agree. The croissants are fresh, the beaches are pristine, and the robot factory burnt down and exploded in that order. But the important thing is, the police have no idea who started the fire. That is important. Since they're apparently looking for a man and a woman between 20 and 50 years old. Uh-huh. Who are described as suave or being fashionable and pyromaniacal. You know, that description basically describes everyone. But mostly, not us. You want to go hit up that bakery again? Oh, French carbs are the best carbs. Let's get it.